0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McLarty. Well, all right, all of you very reverent people, it's good to see you tonight. This is the first time that I have heard my voice through this PA system with everything off the walls, Sounds better. and I hear myself reverberating through the room. Is it too loud? Is it okay? I don't want anybody to go home tonight with me ringing in their ears, but it's, it's loud. <laughs> there are worse things. Well, that's probably true. So, as the book of Job continues, we're going to see yet another cycle of the same thing we saw last week, which is Job is going to bemoan his situation and he's going to express his real genuine confusion about what's going on with him. Now, again, try to put shoe leather on this or a lack of shoe leather. He's to the point where he describes himself as his skin is hardening, he's covered in dirt, he's been throwing dirt on himself, he's sitting on an ash heap, and he says he's covered with worms, which would make sense that maggots would be eating the dead skin. And he says that his body is pus that is oozing out of him. So he's describing himself in very, very graphic terms, But sometimes I think it would be easy to think, well, Job was just uncomfortable. He wasn't just uncomfortable. He was in major agony. And as a result of that, he's really confused about what in the world he possibly could have done that would have brought this on him. And so he continues to insist that he's innocent, that he didn't do this. And then Bildad, the Shuhite, is going to take his first volley, at Job. And Bildab is going to sound very much like the current name it and claim it Pentecostal folks. The the folks who say, well, if you just have enough faith and you're just good enough, you can obligate God to give you riches. That's kind of what Bildab's going to get at. He's going to say, well, look at you. You're in such poor condition. That has to be the result of you doing bad things. Mm -hmm. Because we know that God is a God who always rewards good people. And since he always rewards good people with plenty of good stuff, and you're not getting that good stuff, that's proof positive that you're just not good. So just admit what you did. And of course, Job is going to retain his integrity and say yet again, I don't know why this is happening to me, and he's going to start speaking directly to God, saying to God, I don't comprehend this. I don't understand this. Why don't you just take my life from me? My life is so fleeting. Man's life is such a vapor. Why would you even pay attention to men? And why would you pay so much attention to me right now that you would put me through this for your own purposes? Why don't you just let me go? So you can really hear the agony that Job is in. But that's contrasted with Bildad coming up to him and kind of saying, it's your fault. You had to have done something. Which is a great way, by the way, to comfort people who are in pain. Next time you have to deal with someone who's really in pain, it really helps if you say to them, it's your fault. In fact, Bildad's going to go so far as to imply, you know, you lost all your sons in one day. That must be because they were so bad. They did something so wrong because God, you know, always punishes sinners. He clearly punished your sons. They must all be sinners. So great way to build up a man who just lost 10 children and all of his riches all in one day, and then he lost his health, and then his friend says to him, you did this. And to rub salt in the wound, God is just being fair in killing your children. So it's really going to get very, very harsh. Okay, so let's start at Job chapter 7, right at the beginning at verse 1. This is Job's lament prior to Bildad starting. Now let me say for the folks that are in the room, and particularly for the folks who are on the internet, that next week there's not going to be any midweek service here at GCA while the building is going through its facelift. You're going to write to me next week and say, where's the new message this week? Well, I'm telling you right now, there won't be a new message next week, so you'll just have to hold on to what Bildad says for two weeks. Starting at chapter 7, verse 1, this is the case with mankind, and it's interesting that Job says something very similar to what Solomon says. The way Job puts it, he says, is not man forced To labor on earth. As soon as Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God said that from then on, men were going to eat through the sweat of their brow. From then on, human beings were going to have to work and work hard in order to put food on the table. Is not man, are not human beings forced to labor here on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired man? In other words, he's saying God's the boss. And no matter what you accomplish in this life, you still end up having to serve him. Do what he wants. Do what he says. The days of a man on this earth are like a hired man. As a slave who pants for the shade. That means like somebody working out in the hot sun who's just looking for any kind of shade to get the the beating down of the sun and the heat off them. Men are like hired men who eagerly wait for their wages. So what's the purpose? What's the point of what he's saying? That human beings serve God, but we are looking forward to the day when it's all going to be worth it. When it's finally going to pay off. The same way that a guy works all week and then goes to his boss and says, give me what I've earned. Give me what I've worked so hard for. The same way human beings have to work by the sweat of their brow through their whole lives. They're like hired men who eagerly await for that payment that's coming. So am I allotted months of vanity. Do you understand what that word vanity means? It means to be egocentric. It means to care only about yourself and for that to ultimately be emptiness. So he's saying, I'm given these months of pain, which are really making me concentrate on myself, and yet it's all for nothing. It's all just vanity. Again, like Solomon said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So I am allotted these months of vanity, And the nights of trouble are appointed for me. You can imagine, as sick as he is, it's really hard to sleep. So now he's going to describe what his nights are like. Mm -hmm. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? Have you had those kind of nights where you just can't get any sleep and you just start thinking, just bring the morning. Just bring the morning and I'll just get up again and I'll just go do what I got to do. Because he can't rest, he says, when I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night continues, and I am continually tossing and turning until dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and a crust of dirt, and my skin hardens and it runs. That means it seeps out. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. So life is very brief. That phrase, swifter than a weaver's shuttle, he's talking about the plank of wood that has the yarn wrapped around it, that a weaver runs back and forth through the loom. A good weaver can work that shuttle very quickly. And he says, that's what life is like down here. It just moves so quickly, and it's all vanity, and it all comes to nothing, and it comes to an end without hope. Remember that my life is but a breath, and my eye will not again see good. He's so destitute at this point that he believes he's never going to see goodness again. Now, at the end of the book of Job, we do read that God restores Job and restores the things that he took from Job. But at this point, Job is in such agony that he can't even see his way clear to think of tomorrow. So remember that my life is but a breath. My eye will not again see good And the eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. He's talking to his three friends who have come to see him. He's saying, when I die, when I go into the grave, you're not going to see me anymore. This life is a vapor. This life is passing. Your eyes will be on me, but I will not be. When a cloud vanishes, it is gone. So is he who goes down to the grave. He does not come up again. So he's saying eventually this is going to be over. Eventually I'm just going to die. And when I die, I'm just going to essentially vanish. Life is going to go on. Other people are going to come and go. And they're not going to remember that I was even here. And yet I have to live out these days of vanity. These days of tossing and turning. These days of not sleeping. God has declared that I have to go through this. And yet for what purpose? What does it accomplish? It's all emptiness. And when a cloud vanishes, it's gone. So he who comes down to Sheol or down to the grave, he does not come back up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth That's the thing that they've been saying to him. Stop your complaining. Stop speaking. In fact, in a minute, Bildad's going to say that his words are like a mighty rushing wind. It's like there's all these words that come pouring out of your mouth. You just need to be quiet and admit that you're wrong. Job says, I'm not going to restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that thou dost set a guard over me? That's kind of a difficult phrase. What he's saying is, am I really that horrible? Am I like the ocean that God has to restrain, keep the land borders to keep the ocean? Restrain? Or am I like a horrible sea monster that you have to keep an eye on constantly and keep entrapped? He says, that's what it seems to be with me. Why do you keep doing this to me, God? Why are you keeping me restrained by this sickness? Am I really that horrible? Am I a sea monster that thou didst set a guard over me? If I say, my bed will comfort me, or my couch will ease my complaint, then you do frighten me with dreams. And you terrify me by visions. So there's no rest. When he's awake, he's desperately sick. Clothed in worms, his skin is hardening and running out with pus. So he thinks, well, maybe I'll just sleep. If I can sleep, I can then get away from the agony of my life. He says, and then when I sleep, you torture me with bad dreams. And you give me horrible visions. There's no rest for me. You do frighten me with dreams, and you terrify me by visions, so that my soul would choose suffocation, death, rather than my pains. That's how bad it's getting. I waste away. I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. I don't think he's talking to his friends here when he says, leave me alone. I think he's begging God since he has already said, am I like a monster that you have to keep paying attention to me and keep entrapping me this way? That when I'm awake, I'm in pain. When I'm asleep, I'm in terror. Why do you have to keep guarding me like this? It would be better if you just left me alone and then I could just die. But that's not going to happen. I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that thou dost magnify him and that thou art concerned about him, that thou dost examine him every morning and try him every moment? This is very similar to what David says when David says, what is man? Man's but a worm. It's the word maggot. He's amazed that God would pay attention to and justify and love human beings who are, who are just maggots. Job says just the opposite. God, why would you bother to take the time to torture me this continually, to keep doing this to me over and over again? I'm just a man. I'm just a worm. Let up on me. What is a man that you're concerned about him, that you do examine him every morning and try him every moment? Wilt thou never turn thy gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? That phrase means when you're down to nothing, when you've got no more water, when you're just desperate, all you've got to drink is the last of the spit in your mouth. That phrase, by the way, is still a Middle Eastern phrase that's pretty common. Until I reach the point of swallowing my own spit. And what it means is to be completely destitute. So he's saying, God, you've driven me to the point of utter destitution. Is that what you want from me? Please look away from me. Pay attention to somebody else, please. But no, you keep doing this to me. So verse 20. He finally asked the question, have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as thy target, so that I am a burden to myself? Why did you make this decision? Why did you decide that you were going to target somebody and you targeted me? Have I sinned? If I've sinned, he's about to say, then why not pardon me? Why not forgive me? Apparently, you're just continually torturing me for it. Have I sinned? What have I done to thee, O watcher of men? Why hast thou set me as a target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust, and thou wilt seek me, but I will not be. He'd rather just die. Now, this is an interesting question. He seems to be very aware that it is God who ultimately has to pardon sin, that it's God who forgives transgression and takes away iniquity. He's aware, apparently, of that theology, and so he's caught in this conundrum where he says, You're the God that forgives, and so if it is true what I have already heard, what my friends have already charged me with, they're saying that I have sinned, and that's why these terrible things are happening to me, but if that is true, if I have sinned, then why are you making me pay for it? Why don't you forgive me for it? If you forgave me for my iniquity, then you wouldn't be torturing me because of my iniquity. And yet his friends are arguing, you had to have done something. Now again, Job is correct. Job's theology is correct. Job's understanding that a sovereign God can do whatever he wants is correct. But what he's not doing is saying, well, God is just and fair, and clearly I've done something wrong. He's saying, what is it? What could I possibly have done? Yes, sir? I'm trying to keep quiet, but I have to ask I know that we believe that this is the only book in the Bible and it was written before the law. I know that we believe that. But their theology or philosophy or whatever you want to call it that they're, that they're talking about, the law did say if they were to do this, then God would reward them if they did the right thing. And he would punish them if they didn't. How did they know this? If, if this was done written before the law. How did Noah know when he hit dry land to start sacrificing? Clearly God had revealed these things. We don't have a record of it specifically but we see all these examples of people prior to the law, here even prior to Abraham doing the things that God requires. And why did he believe Satan? How did he know that God did? I I think because a proper understanding of the God of heaven is recognizing, and in a minute, by the way, after Bildad gets done speaking, Job is even going to bring up mythology and point out that God's even in charge of that. So God's in charge of demons, God's in charge of devils, God's in charge of myths. If he's sovereign, he's sovereign over absolutely everything, that being the case, the ultimate cause of everything is God. So even if the devil brought these pains on him, it still had to be God that allowed it, yeah, yeah. right? Yes. Good point. Thanks. And I'll say it again, I've pointed it out before, but long as you said that, the knowledge that everything we go through, good and bad, is in the hands of a sovereign God who loves us, <clears throat> makes it easier for us to endure the bad when the bad happens, yeah. because then the bad has purpose. And I can't think of anything more vain, more empty, more pointless than going through pain that has no purpose. That would make God capricious. That would mean that God takes joy out of torturing people for no reason. But if you know that sovereign God has a reason for the pains he's taking you through, well, that will get you through it, right? Right? And I think that's a lot of what the early part of the book of Job is showing us by pulling back the curtain and showing us that Job is suffering unbelievably, but there's purpose to it. There is a cause that helps us to understand that all the suffering we go through in this lifetime has a reason, right? All righty. All right, so now Bildad speaks up. Good old Bildad, very short guy. Bildad the shoe height. Bildad now decides to chastise Job. After Job has said all of the painful things that he has said, after he has expressed the agony that he's living in, his very good friend decides to make him feel better about his own guilt. How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth, they be like a mighty wind. You're just blowing hot air would be the common phrase these days. Your words are like a mighty wind. Does God pervert justice? So he's going to argue for God's justness here. For the fact that God would not change or pervert or corrupt his own justice. Or does the almighty pervert what is right? So whatever you're going through, it must be just and right. If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Yeah, wow. Yeah, your sons are dead, yes, but that must be because of their own transgression. They must have done something so wrong that God, who only does right, who only does those things that are just and proper, If he killed your sons, it had to be your son's fault. And then he delivered them into the power of their transgressions. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. That is name it, claim it, theology in a nutshell right there. If you're good, if you're pure, and you implore the compassion of the Almighty, then surely he's going to rouse himself up for you. He's going to react to you, and then he's going to restore your righteous estate. He's going to give you all your stuff back, and you're going to be the same important man that you used to be if you just do the right pure things. If you just have enough faith, if you just say the right words, if you just use the right formula, if you just name it and claim it, then definitely God is going to rouse himself up to make sure to give you good things. That's the theology of Bildad. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty. By the way, doesn't it sound like Job has been doing that? I mean, Job's been crying out to God and imploring God. But if you would implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely he would rouse himself for you. Right now, you're covered in worms, sitting in an ash heap, your skin is is pussing out and filled with dirt, and uh, so that must be evidence, that must be proof that you are not pure and upright. Because if you were pure and upright, then surely God would rouse himself for you. But since he hasn't, Since you're in this condition, clearly you're not either pure or upright. You must be sinful the same way your sons were sinful, and that's why your sons are dead. Good old Bildad. That's a buddy, isn't it? That's a friend right there. If you're pure and upright, surely now he will rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. And though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. You're going to have great increase. How many guys on TV have you heard preach just exactly like that? Who say, this is the year of your harvest, and this is the year of your increase, and this is the year that God is going to turn it all around and give you back the days that the locusts have eaten, and all that kind of stuff where... They're essentially saying you can get so good, so right, so faithful that God is obligated to give you riches and to make you well known and healthy. And He's going to take good care of you based on His reaction to how good you are. Mm. And though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Then He makes a logical error. This particular logical error is that He's going to appeal to authority. The authority he appeals to is past generations, our fathers. If they were here now, they'd be with me. (laughs) Isn't that convenient when you make an argument and say, you know, if those dead people were here now, they can't speak for themselves at this moment. But if they were here, they'd agree with me. They'd be against you. And you know this how? So please inquire of past generations, says verse 8, and consider the things that were searched out by the fathers. For we are only of yesterday and we know nothing. All he's saying is, look, we're only here on the planet for a short time, so we don't know much. Go back and see what the forefathers, see what the earlier generations had to say. What's the collective compendium of their knowledge? What have they got to say about it? For we are only of yesterday, and we know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. Verse 10, will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? So he's saying, they agree with me. The forefathers, the wise men, the ones of the past, they would agree with me. Here's the example, starting in verse 11. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? the answer is no, they've got to have a lot of water that's why papyrus grow in the marshy land get rid of the water, the papyrus is going to fall the reed is going to be destroyed can the rushes or the reeds grow without water and while it is still green and not cut down, yet it will wither before any other plant if it doesn't get water, it's just going to wither right up And so are the paths of all those who forget God. And so is the hope of the godless. It will perish. Do you hear what Bildad just said? He said, you're in this condition because you forgot God. You're in this condition because you're godless. Because look, it's axiomatic. A reed has to have water or it will shrivel up and die. You are shriveling up and dying because you're removed from the source of life. You're godless. You forgot God. That's why this is happening to you. So are the paths of all those who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish, whose confidence is fragile, and whose trust is like a spider web. Has anybody here walked through a spider web recently? Yeah. All too often here during the summer. I did just the other day. Walking out to my car. Just was attacked by a spider web. An angry spider web attacked me. Now imagine that there is a spider web on the side of your house somewhere. And you decide that all your confidence is going to be in that spider web. And so you lean on it with all your weight. Will it hold you? No, of course not. You're going to fall right through the spider web. Well, that's what Bildad is getting at. Bildad said, a person who trusts in his house, well, that house isn't going to stand. He holds fast to it, but it does not endure. So that's like trusting in a spider web and leaning on a spider web. (laughs) That kind of confidence is fragile. Verse 16 says, he thrives before the sun and his shoots spread out. Over his garden. Now, essentially, what he's going to say here is you're like a plant who, when you're in the garden, your roots don't go deep enough, so you end up clinging to rocks and clinging to other things. But when you're cut off from that root, you're just going to shrivel up and die. He thrives before the sun, and his shoots spread out over his garden. His roots wrap around a rock pile, and he grasps a house of stones. And if he is removed from his place, if he's dug up, then it will deny him, saying, I never saw you. And behold, this is the joy of his way, that out of the dust others will spring. Here's the argument. He's saying, all the joy that a plant gets after it's been dug up, if it doesn't have good roots, if it's not getting water, if it needs to be dug up and destroyed, the only joy it's going to get is that maybe someday there will be a new plant there in this place. So what's he saying to Job? The only joy you get is after you die, maybe someone else will rise up and take your place. That's as much as you can hope for. And again, wow is right. Behold, this is the joy of his way, that out of the dust others will spring. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity. Job, you're clearly failing in the integrity department. Because God is clearly rejecting you. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity. And nor will he support the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. He's willing to do that. All you got to do is repent. All you got to do is admit to him that you've been bad and make your way good. All you have to do is do better, clean yourself up, and then God will fill your mouth with laughter. And then God will fill your lips with shouting. And those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked will be no more. So do you understand the, the whole of Bildad's argument here? You're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your own house. You're trusting in your own integrity. That's like leaning on a spider web. And if you were good, if you were pure, then God would give you the desires of your heart. But since he hasn't, since you're in this condition, then clearly you have forgotten the Lord. Clearly you are godless. And that's why you're like this, because God will not reject a man of integrity but he's rejected you so clearly you have no integrity so repent and then God will fill your heart with laughter mm. so was that any real encouragement to a guy who's in a lot of pain no. <clears throat> does that make anybody feel any better about anything <laughs> no okay but how familiar is that argument too familiar too familiar you can start to see now why at the end of the book of Job and that's why in the introduction to the book I started at the end of the book where God shows up and says that what these three people have said has inflamed his wrath and made him angry because they did not say what is right about him Hmm. so that idea that God is a reactor that human beings determine what God is going to do And that human beings can make themselves so good, so right, so pure, that God is then obligated to give them the desires of their heart. That's a really, really common theology, and it's a really, really wrong theology. Mm -hmm. But you can hear it any day of the week. So let's start chapter 9, because now Job is going to respond. And this is where Job is going to continue to show his real confusion about what is happening to him. Then Job answered, in truth, I know that this is so. Let him keep going on for a moment. He's just said that if he were righteous, that God was going to fill his mouth with laughter and his lips with shouting and those that hate you would be clothed with shame. And Job answered, in truth, I know that this is so. But, but how can a man be right before God? I'm going to grant you your argument, Bildad. I'm going to grant you that if a man was right and pure, that then God would react positively to him. The problem is, how is a man right with God? Hmm. There's the bigger problem. In truth, I know that this is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with God, he could not answer God once in a thousand times. So if you're going to have an argument with God, do you think God could come up with questions that would completely bumfuzzle you? Bumfuzzle was the word I went with today, that would completely confound and confuse you? Do you think God could tell you things that would make your head explode? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what if God showed up, like he does at the end of the book, and starts saying, where were you when I created everything? What's anybody going to answer to that? Okay, so Job's in the right place here. Job says, if we were going to dispute with God, we couldn't answer him once in a thousand times. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has defied him without harm? Yeah, you come up against God, you're going to lose. And you're going to lose bad. It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. In other words, it's God that's responsible for earthquakes. That when the earth shakes and rattles and mountains that used to be over there end up over there, he says, God has that kind of power. You don't. How are you going to argue with him? How are you going to fight with him? Verse 7. He commands the sun not to shine. And he sets a seal upon the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens. And tramples down the waves of the sea. Who makes the bear and Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? He's saying, okay, he sets the stars in array. And he's the one that's in charge of the constellations. The reason that we're able to look at the stars day by day and consistently navigate off them is because God in his consistency has set the stars exactly in their place. The reason that we could say, well, that's a bear and that's Orion and those are the Pleiades and is because God has set them in their place and we recognize it. We didn't do it. Josiah didn't do it. Quick, Leon, move a star. We can't do it, but God is the one who does all that. Well, you don't want to argue with that one. Then he goes down into the sea, and he says, He does great things, unfathomable things, and wondrous works without knowledge. Were he to pass by me, I wouldn't even see him. Were he to move past me, I wouldn't even perceive him. Okay, so this makes it even more difficult to argue with him. Not only is he in charge of absolutely everything, not only is he in charge of all the stars and the mountains and the seas and the waves, but then he's able to be in your midst, in your presence, and you don't even know it. You don't even see him. And you're, and you're going to argue with him? How? How? who here could tell God sit down in a chair and I'm going to ask you 30 questions you you couldn't even find him to demand that of him if he were to pass by me I wouldn't even see him were he to move past me I would not perceive him were he to snatch away then who could restrain him if he decides somebody's life is over instantaneously and he snatches them away can you change that Can you do anything about that? When he decides that somebody's life is over, he takes their breath away, they fall down, they're dead. It doesn't matter how many times you stomp your feet or how angry you are at God for doing that, they're still just as dead and you can't change them he's in charge of stars and mountains and waves, he's unfathomable in his wondrous works you can't even see him you can't perceive him with the five senses and if he is to kill somebody you can't do anything about it, you can't argue with him who could say to him what are you doing? does that sound familiar? that's also the argument that you get into in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar comes to his right mind and says that all the people of earth are are reputed as nothing and god does all his will among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand and none can say to him what doest thou nobody gets to ask god why he does things the way he does things now in a minute job's going to bring it down to here's the reason the reason is a question of power God has all the power, which is why he is God omnipotent, omnipotent, has all the authority, all the power. He even gives himself the proper name, El Shaddai, God Almighty. So if he has all the power and he has all the might, then that leaves none over for anybody else. That means you have no power. He has all the power. How do you argue with the all-powerful? How do you say to him, Why are you doing this? Because the answer is he's doing whatever pleases him. It's what David wrote. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever he pleases. And if you don't like it, if you're not comfortable with it, doesn't matter. It's going to happen anyway. Why would he put this on me? Why would I have this series of circumstances? Why would I have this disease? Why would I have this set of circumstances? Why did I lose my riches? Why, why did those people leave me? Why did, The problems of life that we go through were powerless to change. God has all the power. He brings those things about in our life for a purpose. What we have to do is bow before the Almighty and recognize that he's going to do whatever he's going to do and no one gets to say why did you do it that way were he to snatch away who could restrain him who could say to him what are you doing God will not turn back his anger if he's angry you're not going to talk him out of it hey God stop it that hurts he's going to be angry and he's going to do what he's going to do And beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab. Anybody know what that's about? The helpers of Rahab? Actually, the Hebrew word would have a good deal of uh, aspiration in the middle of it. It would be more like a Rahab. The cohorts of Rahab, the helpers of Rahab, even submit to God. This is a mythological story. I told you earlier about it. It refers to a Babylonian creation myth in which a god named Marduk defeated Tiamat, which is another name for the Leviathan. And the Leviathan also goes by this name, Rahab. But he then captured all her helpers. Now that name then, Rahab, became a bad name that was even used as a nickname for Egypt in the way that Egypt held Israel captive. Psalm 87, 4 makes mention of it. I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. That's a reference to Egypt and Babylon. Psalm 89, 9 to 11 says of God, You rule the swelling of the sea. That sounds very much like what we just read. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. And the world and all it contains, you have founded them. And then the real obvious connections made in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 7, it says, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty, and therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. So the idea of what Job is saying here. By making reference to the helpers of Rahab, he's reaching it back into that mythology and saying, God who is the great God, God who is the greatest of all mythological gods, even the helpers of Rahab have to cower under his feet, have to look up to him. God will not turn back his anger beneath him, crouch the helpers of Rahab have a better sense of what that means now? Yes. Not only is he in charge of all the physical stuff, not only is he in charge of the stars of the heaven, but he's also in charge of the things that we believe and the mythologies of man and the stuff we make up and the fake gods. He's still the only real genuine sovereign God who even those fake gods have to cower underneath. That's what Job's getting at. His whole argument is, how are you going to fight with him? you can't even stir up the fake gods to go argue with him verse 14 how then if they can't answer him how then can I answer him and choose my words before him for even though I were right I could not answer I would have to implore the mercy of my judge if I called and he answered me I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Boy, how true is that? If you called out to God and he showed up and went, what? You wouldn't be able to come up with your next question because you'd be astounded that God just replied to you. Well, that's what Job is saying. If the Almighty were to answer me, I wouldn't know what to say after that. I'd end up having to implore the mercy of my judge. And if I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest. Such interesting poetic language. He could bruise me just by hitting me. He could bruise me lightly with the condition of my skin. But he says, God has so overdone it in my case that he's stirring up tempests to bruise me with. For he bruises me with a tempest and he multiplies my wounds. Here's the key word, without a cause. There's no reason for what he's doing here. I'm innocent. There's no sin for me to confess. He multiplied my wounds without cause. And he will not allow me to just get my breath. But he saturates me with bitterness. And if it is a matter of power behold he is the strong one and if it is a matter of justice who can summon him Okay. so if it's a matter of justice and you decide you're going to put God on trial and you send him a summons to appear at your court is he going to show up no who can summon God to put God on trial it's a matter of justice and you say well now I'm going to make God respond for the things he has done who can even summon him who can call him but the real heart of the matter in verse 19 and it's the heart of the matter in so many theological issues is it's a matter of power I remember many many years ago talking to Tom and we had a conversation where Tom said it's not a question of whether God Picks, chooses, and elects. That's not the question. The question is does God have the power to do that? If He has the power to do it, then what we think of it doesn't matter. Our opinion on the subject is completely moot because we don't get to argue with the one who has all the power. And a moment ago I said, He's the Almighty. He's the omnipotent. He's the one with all the authority. And he demonstrates it by doing the things you can't do. You can't move a star. You can't tell the sea to lay down. You can't stop the waves. You can't tell the oceans exactly where their borders are and that they can't come past here. But God does all of that. God's in charge of sickness. God's in charge of wellness. How do I know? Because Job is phenomenally sick, and later in the book, God's going to heal him. So who's in charge? God put the sickness on him. God puts the healing on him. God's in charge of everything he has, and he took it all away from him. Steve doesn't have that kind of power. If Steve tries to take away everything I've got, I'm calling a cop, and he's going to jail. But but Steve doesn't have the authority that God has, therefore, as a question of power, he cannot demand anything of God, because he is the powerless, and God is the all-powerful. So Joe puts that question forward: If it is a matter of power, behold, he's the strong one. He's the powerful one. So I don't even have an argument. I don't even have a way to call him to answer my questions. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Mm. And though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Mm. One of the things that really, you're nodding way too vigorously over there. One of the things that Luther struggled with so much in his attempt to be genuinely righteous climbing up the steps of the Lateran Palace on his knees and sleeping on stone floors and flagellating himself and everything else, trying to improve his own personal righteousness prior to his conversion and his recognition that the just shall live by faith. One of the things that he confessed to his abbot was he said, even when I have a moment where I believe that I'm sinless at that moment, that I'm, at the moment I'm not doing anything wrong, at the moment I, I think I'm holding my sin at bay, in that moment I'm proud of myself for not sinning, and my pride is sin. Mm-hmm. So regardless, even if I make the declaration that I'm doing well, that declaration condemns me. Well, that's essentially, again, what Job is getting at here. Even if I'm righteous, my mouth will condemn me. I'm going to say something that God can hold me guilty of. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. And I am guiltless. And I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. And therefore I say... He destroys the guiltless and the wicked. That's the conclusion that he's come to at this moment theologically. He says, I am guiltless, and nevertheless, this is happening to me. Therefore, I have to come to the conclusion. Unlike what you've said, Bildad. Unlike the fact that you've said, if I were pure, if I were good and righteous, God would give me the desires of my heart. God would improve my estate. I don't think that's the way it works. He answers what I've concluded based on my own situation, not based on what the forefathers thought or anybody else's opinion. I know my own righteousness and my own guiltlessness in this. I am guiltless, and yet this has happened to me. Therefore, he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. And if the scourge kills suddenly, he mocks the despair of the innocent. He's not like you and me. He doesn't have the same emotions. He's not driven by feelings. He's driven by his righteousness, his determination, and he does what he wants to do. 24. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. And he covers the faces of its judges. In other words, remember the book of Judges in the Bible, that there are people who are supposed to be determining what is right and wrong based on what God has said. And yet God seems to have turned the planet over the wicked, and he seems to be covering the faces of the judges. The judges aren't acting fairly, they're not acting just, and they don't seem to be seeing the stuff that is going on. I just got to throw this in. This is this has been an ongoing conversation this week, and I'm not sure why it fits right here, but it but it does. The idea that the world is wicked. Uh, right now, I'm making a, a video. I'm editing it right now. Where I'm talking about the fact that you need to make your calling and election sure, like Peter says, and the way that you make your calling and election sure and certain is by your behavior, because there is a portion of Reformed Christianity that says that your behavior doesn't matter, because God calls, God elects, and that's just kind of the end of it. Part of what inspired that video is something that we just saw recently on the Internet that says that not only are men generally in the world very involved in pornography— The internet, at any given moment, 70 to 80% of the total bandwidth being used by the internet right now is being used for pornography. That's a reality. Now, it would be easy to take that figure and say, yeah, but that's the world. And the world is given over to wickedness and evil. But this was a Christian site I was reading on, and it said, 80% of the men in the church have admitted to regularly watching pornography. So there's not even a separation between the men of the church and the men of the world. And there needs to be, there ought to be. Making it worse, most of those men ended up blaming their wives for their porn habits. That it was her fault if she was just somehow a better wife then they wouldn't be driven to pornography. Because some things never change. Reaching all the way back to Adam and saying, well, the woman that you gave me, trying to blame God and the woman for his own fault. The simple reality is, if you're looking at porn, and I'm not, I'll look at this wall, so I'm not looking at any human right now. <laughs> if you're involved in keeping the pornography industry going, And if you're looking at porn, you're cheating on your wife. And that's adulterous. And don't blame your wife for your mess. If you're looking at porn, that's your problem. That's your fault. You're doing that. Your Christianity is in jeopardy if you're comfortable doing that. And you need to man up and grow up and put on your big boy pants and recognize that that's your responsibility and quit blaming the poor woman for what you're doing that's actually evil. Anyway, all of that was inspired by the fact that Job says, the world is wicked. And that's true. The world is overtaken with wickedness. But the church is supposed to be different than the world the church is supposed to be salt and light in the world the church is supposed to be showing the world the evil of its ways and what is the church doing? the same thing the world is doing the judges are blinded the judges are covered that's how bad it is in this world and that example is very current in my mind right now and by the way, I meant every word of that. If you're doing it, stop it. And if you're doing it, that's you. That's not her. Stop it. I didn't mean to look right at you as I said stop it. I didn't. I'll look at the wall. Stop it. <laughs> We're nearly done. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he then who is it? In other words, the world is in the situation it's in, and God is still God, and God is still on the throne, and God is still sovereign, even though the world is given over to the wicked. It's God that's covering the faces of the judges. If it's not him, who is it? Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, and they see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops onto its prey. And though I say, I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful, boy, how often have you heard that? Just throw off that bad feeling. Just be cheerful. Just buck up. Here we go. If I say that, if I forget my complaint and I leave off my sad countenance and I be cheerful, if I say I'm going to do that, I am afraid of all my pain, and I know that you will not acquit me. So I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vanity? Why should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, which is soap, yet you would plunge me into the pit. And my own clothes would hate me. They would abhor me. In other words, if I put clothes on the way my skin is right now, it would hurt. For God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him. That we should go to court together so that I could put him on trial. There is no umpire between us. There's nobody who can plead the cause between the two of us. There's no umpire between us who could say who's just and who's not just. He's the one who's in charge, so he's right in whatever he does. Who may lay his hand upon us both. That's no umpire. Verse 34, let him, God, let him remove his rod from me. In other words, if it's not him, who? You keep telling me what to do. You keep giving me instruction, but you're not changing anything. It's going to be God who has to remove his rod from me. And let not the dread of him terrify me. And then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. In two weeks, we'll start at chapter 10. And then, again, you're going to see that same cycle. Job is going to despair of God's dealings with him. And then Zophar is going to take his shot at Job. And he's going to do the same thing. He's going to end up saying, Job, this I know, this I trust, that God is just, God is right. And therefore, if he's doing this to you, it has to be because of something you did. Because what is Job doing? He's doing the same thing that we do when we tell people that God is absolutely sovereign and can do whatever he wants. There are people who have grown up in the church, in their tradition. They've grown up believing that God is a certain way and that God takes good people to heaven and that God sends bad people to hell. They've believed that they can make themselves good enough or righteous enough that God will react to them. That's their theology. That's what they believe. And then we show up and we say, no, actually, according to the Bible, God is completely sovereign and he does whatever he wants and he does whatever he pleases and he chooses and he elects and he has the power to do that. He has the authority to do whatever he wants and you don't get to put him on trial. Human beings are so sure they can put God on trial. That's why I say so frequently, don't let people pose their argument in such a way that they're acting as judge and jury on God. God, you can't put him on the trial. You can't put him on the stand. You can't demand answers from him. He's going to be like he's going to be. Our job is just to comport our faith and behavior to what God's like. And people get upset when you say that. People get upset when you explain the real God of the Bible. People will argue because you're stomping on their traditions. But that's been around ever since Job. The reason his three friends are competing with him is because he's walking all over their theology. They're making their theology clear, but then he's telling them, no, this is what God's actually like. And they just don't like it. And you're going to see them in the weeks to come become all the more vehement. They don't like that God. But then again, people don't. <laughs> people to this day still don't like that God, the sovereign God, the God that's in charge. So all right, next week, don't be here. Well, I mean, you can be if you want to paint. But <laughs> next week, don't be here on Wednesday night looking for a, uh, for a Bible lesson. Our Sundays will continue on unimpeded, hopefully, but next week you get a week off. So go visit someplace, go say hi to somebody, go do something useful with that time. Any more questions? We're good? Christian, you learn anything tonight? I did. Were you glad you're here? I was glad I was here. Okay, well, good. Then teach your dad something, will you? <laughs>